primarily on the hope that they could have in the midst of persecution, in the midst of suffering, in the midst of really crummy circumstances. You know, um, they, they were not in ideal situations. So because of that, he made sure to let them know that they could have hope beyond their circumstances. That's what the phrase means when someone says, I'm looking for a light at the end of the tunnel. They're looking for a light at the end of the tunnel because when you're in a dark tunnel and there's no light, it is very scary. It, is, uh, it makes you feel lonely. It makes you feel afraid. If you're claustrophobic like me, it makes you feel claustrophobic. So when someone says, hey, don't worry, this thing's not going to go on forever, there, there is an end to this tunnel that we're walking through. It brings light into the situation. You go, oh, okay, there's relief there. You know, and so Paul writes to them in chapter one and he tells them there is hope in the midst of persecution that Jesus is going to set things right. And then in chapter two, he gives them clarity concerning the coming day of the Lord. There were those who were speaking to them and saying, hey, there, there's really no hope in the resurrection. There's really no hope in the return of Jesus. Um, so uh, you just need to give up your faith and start walking back where you were because this thing you've placed your hope in is really going to disappoint you. But he clarifies that this hope does not disappoint because he's someone who trusts in it himself. And let me emphasize this above everything else in chapter 2, that the teaching in the Bible and the teaching in the church about the coming of the day of the Lord or the return of Jesus should never lead you to be afraid. And what I mean afraid is uh, someone who's anxious and scared of Jesus coming back. If you are scared of the return of Jesus, maybe you need to get right with him. Uh, the purpose, when Paul writes to this church about the return of Jesus, is to inspire them to hope in Jesus and to have confidence in Jesus. If we place our hope or our confidence in any other place, uh, something that we identify ourselves as, you know, maybe you're a teacher, maybe you're a, a laborer, maybe you, you know, you're an administrator, whatever you might be, a mom, if you identify as a mom or as a sister or as a daughter or, you know, if you were the president of the United States and your identity was completely wrapped up in you being the president of the United States, I would be concerned for you because that can be taken away from you. But our hope in Jesus Christ cannot because everything he's promised will be fulfilled. And so it's supposed to inspire us to hope and it's supposed to inspire us to confidence in the one we're hoping in. So in chapter 3, Paul, Paul's going to kind of turn the page. He's going to challenge the idol. <laughs> Not the idol, like an idol, like someone, something that someone worships, but someone who is idol. And so, um, you know, I think of the word idol, and I grew up working in a, in a mechanic shop with my dad. I was a grease monkey every summer. Every day after school, I would do a little bit of homework, and then I would go out, help dad change oil, I'd clean up his tools, I'd put them all away. As a matter of fact, it drives me nuts because now he has a shop, he's got all these toolboxes underneath his bench, so it, you know, it looks nice, because that's what everybody needs in a shop, but it's organized, and so I go to put the tools away, but I still remember where everything went in his previous toolbox, so I can never find anything. But my point is, is that when I think of idle, I think of something that is uh, like when you start your car and it's idling, it's burning gas, but it's not going anywhere. It's, it's burning fuel, but it's not producing anything other than noxious gases. You know, it's destroying the planet. 
but it's not doing anything while it's doing that. And so there's really no worth to it. So Paul writes to them about idle hands. He, um, first in chapter 3, though, in the first five verses, in first, uh, excuse me, verse 1 through 2, I put 1 through 5 up there, but um, 1 through 2, Paul asks for prayer. So Paul is a man like all of the rest of us. He needs prayer. I would take this and I'd apply it and say, I'm going to ask you guys, these things that Paul asks for prayer in, please pray them for me. Because as much as you guys need prayer, and if I text you and I say, hey, how can I be praying for you this week? I want you to know it's because I'm praying for you. And I'd like to have something to pray about. Otherwise, I'm just going, Lord, be with them. You know? And so it's not to be uh, meddling. It's not to be gossiping. It's specifically so I can pray. I'm gonna, I will talk to one person about you. It's going to be Jesus. Okay? And uh, we all need that. Um, but the other side of it is uh, Paul asks for specific prayer in verse 1 and 2. And like I said, these are prayers that I would like for you to pray for me. He says, finally, brethren. I like this because in every one of his letters when he's closing, he says, finally. I think in Romans, though, he says, finally, several times. And it's way more chapters than three. So this isn't really a finally like the Romans got. Finally, now that you've read the, you know, the Magna Carta or War and Peace, here's the end. But in this three-chapter uh, letter, he writes, Finally, brethren, pray for us that the word of the Lord may run swiftly and be glorified just as it is with you. That the word of God would run swiftly. What does that mean? He's saying pray for us that we would fulfill our calling, that we would be so filled with the word that we would take what scripture says, that we would teach it in a way that everyone that hears would understand it. That's the point of what I'm supposed to be doing. I don't always feel like I'm bringing more understanding than if you just read it. But the purpose of someone sitting up on a stool or someone teaching the word of God in their everyday life is to give the people, anyone who's listening, anyone who has ears to hear, understanding in what the word of God says. So pray for us, pray for me, that the word of the Lord may run swiftly, that it would be unhindered from reaching its destination. And its destination is not a place, it's not a, you know, a, a person, it's the human heart. I don't want to reach your brains, I don't want you just to be full of knowledge. Paul writes in Corinthians that knowledge just puffs up. If you, it, nobody likes to know it all in any area of life. Uh, but to have someone that truly knows within their heart, within their center of their will, what the Word of God says, their will is then yielded to what it, they, it has been taught. And so that the Word of God would run swiftly and reach its destination in the human heart. And he says here, just as it is with you. It's running swiftly in your lives. So this is a word of encouragement as well. He's vocally affirming something, or in letter, he's affirming that, that they are, you, the Word of God is, is having an effect on their lives. He says also, pray for us, verse 2, that we may be delivered from unreasonable and wicked men. For not, our, not all have faith. I wrote in my Bible here, not all are Christian. Not all are disciples of Jesus. Not all that call themselves Christian are Christian. And we all know that. We've all been burned by somebody that said they were Christian. And we started to, oh, cool. And we started talking about things and they looked at us like we had three heads. Like, what are you talking about? And if you haven't had that conversation, you should talk about your faith with other people that say they believe because you're going to find out that there are lots of different ideas about what Scripture says. But the Scriptures are clear 
and they teach us uh, concerning these things. He says that, pray that we may be delivered from unreasonable and wicked men, for not all have faith. And those who do not have faith in Jesus, uh, if you're not for Jesus, uh, many times you're not going to be neutral. You're going to be against Jesus. Even if you're not, you know, in a church or in an organization, your purposes are going to be to stop what Jesus has to say because there's truth and there's false. And when those who live for the truth and say there's only one way to salvation, the group that doesn't believe that is going to say, no, that's, that's really, that's not politically correct. You know, that's not right. Um, and they're going to be against that. They're going to want to try to stop you because what you have to say to them, what the gospel is to the unbeliever is offensive. Because the moral man, even the upstanding citizen, has beliefs that says, hey, I do good things for good people, and I, I do good things, and I do it out of the goodness of my heart. But the Bible teaches that no one has any goodness in their heart. So if they are doing good things, but they're not glorifying God with it, they're actually doing wicked things, which is hard for us to wrap our heads around. And so he says, not all, are, not all have faith. So pray that we may be delivered from unreasonable and wicked men. And Paul many times had been arrested for his faith. Um, they, they didn't like that he was turning upside down their culture. And so they would stone him. He got stoned to death one time. That was great. So much had he been stoned, uh, rocks thrown at him, not stoned like we're thinking, but rocks were thrown at him. He was to the point where Luke writes in Acts that he was dead. Now, I wouldn't know if for sure if he was dead or not, because right after that, he says he stands up and walks back into town. But something interesting I was thinking about this week is the fact that Luke was a doctor. <laughs> when, when Luke gave the gospel account, he talked about Jesus praying in the Garden of Gethsemane to the point that he was sweating great drops of blood. He pointed that out because he was a doctor. That was what interested him. That's what he noticed. And so when he says that Paul was stoned and drug out of the city for dead, he's saying he was dead. And then God rose him from the dead. He stepped up. He didn't avoid opposition. He went back towards it. He ran towards the gunfire. I heard that someone say that recently. Any good soldier in a battle, in a war, doesn't run from gunfire. They go to it because that's where the battle's happening. That's where you can make the most impact. And so he goes back into town. So he says, pray for us that we may be delivered from unreasonable and wicked men. And Paul had known that the power of God was able to deliver him from unreasonable and wicked men. So he says, keep praying for that because God can do that. But the Lord is faithful. The Lord is faithful who will establish you and guard you from the evil one because all those who are against the cause of Christ are they're guided by the evil one, by Satan. And we have confidence in the Lord concerning you, both that you do and will do the things we command you. So Paul reminds them in verse 3 and 4, of God's faithfulness and his confidence, not in them and their ability to do all the right things and try harder next time, but he's confident in God's ability to make them faithful. And I think that that's important. Um, if your confidence is in you being able to do better next time, it's, if you've got kids, they've all said it. I'll do better next time. No, they won't. But God is able to change their hearts and make the source from which all of their actions and their words flow, he can change them. And so if they will place their confidence in him making them do better next time, that, that might be a, a more admirable thing to say or more right thing to say. He says now, verse 5, and he prays for them, 
May the Lord direct your hearts into the love of God and into the patience of Christ. And that word patience there harkens back to chapter 1 where he talks about the patience and the endurance they're already showing. They've not let go of the faith. They continued in in trusting the Lord in their present circumstances. But he says now he's praying for the thing that they're already doing because he knows they're going to need more help. He says, may the Lord direct your hearts into the love of God and into the patience of Christ. May he give you patience to endure. And so in verse 6, he goes on and he seemingly switches subjects. And depending on the translation that you have, um, he's going to talk about idleness, but I, I, I had been reading the New Living Translation. I do that devotionally, and it uses the word idleness, but in uh, New King James, it actually uses the word disorderly. So you could totally miss the point of this passage just based on one translation of this word. So in verse 6, he says, but we command you. Imagine that. Uh, someone in leadership in the church is commanding the disciples of Jesus to do something. Now, in our day and age, that is rejected over and over and over because we're in the American people. We're the American people. We're in the United States. We do what we want to do. But as followers of Jesus, we lay aside those rights and we submit ourselves to Jesus first and foremost. And he has placed leaders within the church to command certain things. Now, if they don't align with what Scripture teaches, then you need to reject that command. But Paul here commands them as an apostle. He says, We command you, brethren, in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. He's speaking from the authority that he's been given by whom he's been given. So if a commander in an army was giving an order to his troops, he wouldn't say, I say you do this. He would say, hey, the commander-in-chief has put out an order, and so in, in order with that order, I'm commanding you to do this thing. He gets his authority from somewhere. He doesn't just come up with it on his own, and everyone's under someone's authority, right? We all have things that we have to do we don't like to do necessarily. Some of the things we don't mind, but some of the things we don't like to do, and it's just because the one who we're under the authority of says you must do or you lose job, right? So we all are submissive to somebody, and in the kingdom of God, Jesus Christ is the head. And so Paul appeals to their discipleship in Jesus, and he says, I command you, we command you, that you withdraw from every brother who walks disorderly and not according to the tradition or the teaching which he received from us. Withdraw from them. Okay, wait a minute. There are certain people I should be withdrawing from. He says, With, withdraw from every brother. So he's talking about believers. Withdraw from believers that have this thing going on in their life. And we've seen this before in 1 Corinthians 6. There was a, a man sleeping with uh, someone in his family, his I can't remember exactly who it was. It was like borderline, I think it was like incest, but it was also adultery, and the, people were just accepting it in the church. And in that case, we're like, well, obviously you can't, but we, I don't know that too many of us would call them out on it. I don't know that too many of us would stop hanging out with them uh, because we don't want to offend them. We still want to love them like Jesus does. But in some cases, Jesus calls us to love people by not being in fellowship with them so that they will be ashamed of what they're doing. That person usually likes me. Why are, they, why are they cutting off ties with me? To cause them to question that. Now, in our case, if we were to address somebody that was in known sin in our church, they'd just go down the road. They'd go find some other place. They, they may not even have the opportunity to be ashamed of their conduct because they can find a place to go to church somewhere else. But 
God sometimes calls us to disfellowship with people because of their known sin. And so um, in our society, that seems harsh, but in the love of God, this is actual love. To, to disfellowship with somebody that thinks there's something that is living another way is actually to love them enough to tell them. You know, love without truth is hypocrisy. And truth without love is brutal. So we, we got to find the balance in the middle. We got to live with truth and love towards those who call themselves Christians. There's a different standard. But withdraw from every brother who walks disorderly and not according to the tradition which he received from us. So what does the word disorderly mean? Well, I put it for you on the screen so you guys probably already know by now, but it, it means idleness. But this isn't like someone that's just lazy. This is someone that is idle um, but out of order. So disorderly means out of order, right? Uh, but it's not like the idea we get from someone who has a messy room or someone who has a chaotic life. Many of us have chaotic lives, right? We're busy. We've got responsibilities. We've got commitments. We've got hobbies. And so all of those things can lead to what you might consider a disorderly life. Um, but we're not talking about messiness here. We're talking about idleness. And so in order to get an idea of what Paul's trying to say here, I think it's important that we look at what he contrasts it with. He says, don't uh, fellowship or disband from anybody who is a brother who's living a, a disorderly life. He says, for you, and he points at himself as an example, for you know, you yourselves know how you ought to follow us, for we were not disorderly among you, nor did we eat anyone's bread free of charge but we worked with labor and toil night and day that we might not be a burden to any of you. Not because we do not have the authority, but in order to make ourselves an example of how you should follow us. So he says something about disorderliness by talking about his own orderliness. If that makes sense. He says, um, he points to his own life to show a contrast from the disorderly or the idle life to an, a life that's not idle. Why were these idle? Um, I think it's important to talk about that because it, many believe that they were idle. They were basically quitting their jobs and they were just hanging out. And they were living off what everybody would help them with out of their abundance. Um, but they still had the ability to work. We're not talking about somebody that is uh, on their dying bed. We're not talking about somebody that cannot work. We're talking about somebody that that can work, has the ability, but is not and is living off of the resources of others. And I think there is uh, plenty of that in our culture. Hey, can you go back a slide? Sorry. Another one. Another one by Doug. Okay, there we go. So there are two reasons why we think these people may have been idle. Number one, Jesus could return at any moment. So why work? Let's spend my time getting to know Jesus and hang out with his people, and then when he comes back, I'll be ready. Well, that's fine, but who's going to feed you? You have practical needs still. You have children. You have your own family members that might be on their dying beds that need help and need supported. So you need to work. And he goes on to say here a little bit later, if you don't work, you don't eat. The idea isn't for somebody that can't work. It's for somebody that can. If you've got the ability to work, God's given that to you. Use it to your advantage and use it to be a blessing to others. But another thing was something called Roman patronage. So in their society, there were, there were the haves and the have-nots. If you want to call them the 10% and the 90, you can do that. 
But the top 10%, if you want to call them that, because that's kind of a thing that, probably a thing of the past now because everything moves so quickly. But the idea is those that had lots of money would actually do what they called a patronage where they had poor people that would come in and essentially be their Uber driver for food. And so they'd show up and they'd say, hey, um, can you go get me some flour? Or can you go get me a pizza from Domino's? And then they'd drop them some change and they'd go pick up the food and they would get paid to do these things. No problem, right? We need that. And sometimes it's convenient and it gives, it's an opportunity for someone to earn a living. But in some cases, Christians would be uh, doing these jobs and they would be working for somebody that was living a lascivious life. Uh, a lifestyle that, you know, was just like, live it up. And they'd say, hey, um, little Christian boy, why don't you go pick me up five prostitutes? And, and that would take place, and they would give them the money for it, and then he would get paid to be a part of this disorderly, uh, sinful lifestyle. And uh, so Paul would write to that guy, why don't you go get a real job? Why don't you go work every day, get a schedule, shift work, whatever, so you're not condoning and helping this guy live a sinful life, but also so you don't get entangled in that. Because many times the people you work around, if it's a, a bad situation, you get pulled into it. It's tempting. Hey, I could do a little of that. And next thing you know, they're not living for Jesus anymore. And so Paul's warning them, don't live an idle lifestyle. But that said, no matter the reason, Id- idleness is, is something that is a seedbed for a more sinful lifestyle if we're not careful. So I, I was praying about this, and I was talking with Jesse this morning. Isn't it interesting and in our society, I don't know that anybody would say, I'm bored. Most of us always say, if somebody asks us to do something, I'm really busy. But at the same time, we have plenty of time to, to be on social media. Like, we, we ignore our entire lives to live vicariously through others' pictures and through status updates. And, you know, not, not all of us are doing that. And not all of us that use social media are doing that. I'm not implying that. What I'm saying is, that in a society where we're so busy, yet we have all kinds of times for frivolous things that don't really matter, for vanity. And so um, Paul said, look at my conduct while I was with you. In verse 8, he says, uh, we did not eat anyone's bread free of charge, but we worked with labor and toil night and day that we might not be a burden to you. So he, he didn't eat anybody's bread free of charge. He wasn't looking for a handout. If you've ever been to church or if you grew up in church, a lot of people don't come to church just due to the fact that they think that the pastor is just trying to gain money, you know, and I, and I get that. I've been in those churches. I've been in those places where you're like, do we really need more money around here? This place looks fine, you know, and there's always more things going on than you realize, but the idea is they're always just, you're just trying to live off of me while I'm actually working. But Paul said, I, while I was with you Thessalonians, I worked day and night so that you didn't pay me a cent because I didn't want to be a burden to you. Even though, he says, even though I have the right, according to Scripture, to, you, don't, you don't muzzle an ox while it treads out the grain, is what Paul writes to Timothy, because um, if you muzzle the ox, the idea is they would have this big wheel that they'd pull around and they would crush the grain with, and it would bust it all up. And while, you, while they did that, some of them were kind of misers. They'd put a muzzle on the ox, and he'd be starving to death and having to work for him. But he still had to do the work. And so he says, take the muzzle off, let him eat a little bit while he works, and you'll have a better ox. He, he will be unhindered from working wholeheartedly for you. You won't beat him down. He'll be strong. He'll be useful. And then he'll work the next day too, you know. 
And, and so the idea is that Paul had the right to take a salary. He had the right to take offerings from them, but he did not because he didn't want to be a burden to them. And then he says, we worked anyway we could, so as not, well, he says not to be a burden, but then he says we didn't need anyone's bread free of charge. So that's Paul's idea of I wasn't idle. I was using every ability I had to provide for myself so I could fulfill what God's given me to do. Um, so what's the problem with idleness? I have for you a couple of reasons. Number one, idleness makes us an unnecessary burden to others. We live in a society that has an amazing system where those who are in financial ruin or come across bad things have an opportunity to be provided for by the system. And many of us don't like that. But I think many of us hopefully don't like that because people take advantage of it. They do, right? Anytime there's something that's to be a blessing, there's going to be somebody comes along and robs from it even though they don't really need it. They take advantage of it. Um, number two, uh, it gives you too much time on your hands. Verse 11 says that. Uh, verse 10, he says, For even when we were with you, we commanded you this, If anyone will not work, neither shall he eat. For we hear that there are some who walk among you, these are in the church, in a disorderly or in an idle manner, not working at all, but are busybodies. They're, they're not busy, so they become busy, Right? They don't have stuff to do, so they're finding things to do. But instead of being busy about the Lord's business, uh, they become busy about Satan's business. Idle hands, right? The devil's workshop. So number three, he says, uh, or, or I, write, I write there. He doesn't say, I say. Uh, number two, too much time on my hands. Number three, we find things to do, meddling and gossip. And that is what we find to do when we are idle. When we're not busy about our own stuff, we find people to talk about. We find things to get involved in that don't pertain to us, and uh, we start getting uh, busy about those things. And number four, uh, when you're idle, when you're not using your hands to provide for your family, the idea is uh, you could also be being a blessing to others. I don't know too many people that don't make enough money for themselves. Now, there are people that don't make enough money for themselves, but everybody I know, even if they don't have much, many times is generous. And, and God gives us the increase. Many times we get a, uh, a raise at work. Many times we get a, a little bonus at the end of the year. And many times what we do is, instead of using that bonus that we were totally fine living without to be a blessing to someone else, we go, oh, well, I can get another payment. You know, and maybe you guys aren't that way, but my brain goes, hey, I've got a little extra money. I can spend it in this area. And then I end up having another payment, and I'm like, why did I do that? I just raised my need. <laughs> I'm, I mean, we've all done it. I guarantee it. But the idea is, um, if, if, we're, we're not, if we're idle, not only can we not provide for our families, but we also can't be a blessing to others. And there's been many times where I've wanted to uh, give to others, and I couldn't uh, because I wasn't using my resources the best way I could. And uh, so the next slide is called The Purpose of Work. And I thought it was interesting because uh, how many people in here like work? No? All right. Cindy does. She really does. I've seen her do it. She's over there. She's listening to a book, wax dipping. She's a good example. She actually enjoys her job. That's great. I'm thankful for that. Um, because on my bad days, I just walk by there and go talk to her for a little bit. And I'm like, hey, we're blessed. We got a 
we got a paycheck. I got a J-O-B. My wife loves me. I keep bringing home money, and she's able to take care of our kids. And so there, there's all these things that go along with it. But work is a four-letter word. Work is something that we absolutely abhor. But what is the purpose of work? I think it's important that we know that. Number one, to provide for your needs and your family. Number two, this isn't necessarily priorities, by the way. Number two, to have enough to benefit others. Benefit others. Number three, to keep you from getting into trouble. I pray about this a lot because I think that in a lot of ways I would be unhindered a little bit more to prepare to teach, to make my craft a little bit better at, at presenting a message and making it simpler, not more complicated, uh, to have more time to prepare for worship, to have more time to pray, uh, to have more time to spend with my kids. You know, But if I didn't have to work two full-time jobs, but the Lord keeps reminding me, like, hey, uh, I think that I could do that for you, but how would you use that extra time? Would you actually use it for the things you're praying about? Or would you be more idle and start getting yourself into trouble? And I'm like, well, you're probably right, Lord, because I've had a lot of free time in the past. I didn't have to work when I was going to college. Guess what? It did not go well. I should have been working. So, ironically, most of us spend a ton of our efforts trying to find ways so we don't have to work, Right? At retirement or an easier job or whatever and and we're not no no one's above that um but um the idea is that many times we're we're wanting to get away from the thing that god's using us using in our lives to keep us out of trouble so in genesis chapter 18 we're going to look at an example of this genesis chapter 18 anybody ever heard of the place called sodom nobody genesis 18 we're going to read about sodom a little bit now, in Genesis 18, 16 through 26, God tells Abraham, his man, he says, Abraham, I'm going to destroy Sodom. And Sodom's got a nephew that lives there. And so he starts praying. He's interceding. It shows it as a dialogue between him and God, but really the dialogue is him praying and interceding on behalf of Sodom. Are you going to destroy it if there's 50 righteous there? Are you going to destroy it if there's 15 righteous there? And he keeps going down in the number like, are you going to you know, destroy this thing if there's righteous people there. Are you going to destroy the righteous with the wicked? And God comes back and he says, I, I won't. And then it seems that he sends two angels in to go get his nephew Lot and his family. And when he does that, he, he comes across some pretty wicked things that maybe uh, in our day we, we may not even see it as that big of a deal, and, and hopefully we should. There should be still an ability to blush at these things. But in Genesis 19, it says, Two angels came to Sodom in the evening, and Lot was sitting in the gate of Sodom. And when Lot saw them, he rose to meet them, and he bowed himself with his face towards the ground. And he said, Here now, my lords, please turn into your servant's house and spend the night and wash your feet. Then you may rise early and go on your way. Now there's, for your own study, if you want to read the last couple of chapters of Judges, there's something that's very similar to what takes place in this passage. And they said, no, but we will spend the night in the open square. But Lot insisted strongly, so they turned into him and entered his house. Then he made them a feast and baked them unleavened bread, and they ate. Now before they lay down, the men of the city, the men of Sodom, both old and young, all the people from every quarter surrounded their house. There's 
you guys aren't from around here, are you? You know, that, that kind of idea. When we see somebody that we don't, everybody kind of starts to look and try to figure out, and they show up at Lot's house, and they surround it, and they do something interesting. They called to Lot, verse 5, and said to him, Where are the men who came to you tonight? Bring them out that, to us that we may know them carnally. Now, you can clean this up all you want. They wanted to know them sexually. These men had surrounded his house, and they were going to take advantage of these two men that came in. They thought they were men to deliver Lot out of town. They were going to basically rape him, rape these guys. What is this doing in the Bible? Like this, this what is going on? This, this thing, Lot has over time slowly ended up in this very, very worldly city, and he finds himself, these are the people he's hanging out with. God's best was that he stayed with Abraham and God's chosen people, but he slowly ended up in this city to where this is what the men do when someone new comes in town. And so um, Lot went out to them through the doorway, shut the door behind him and said, please, my brethren, do not do so wickedly. See now I have two daughters and who have not known a man. Please let me bring them out to you and you may do that to them as you, I can't read the rest. If you've read this passage, I hope it makes you absolutely sick to your stomach. Because he says, hey, you know, the, the Middle Eastern, and I never understood this, but the Middle Eastern idea is not so much he, that he wants his daughters to be harmed, but hospitality is something that they pride themselves in. And so they will, anybody that comes into your home, you are responsible for their care. And you will not let them get harmed at any cost. This is love like we don't know as hospitality people. Um, the, but the idea is this is still ridiculous. He says, no, here's my daughters. You can have them. And I just want to smack him aside the head. And so, um, and they said, verse 9, I'm skipping ahead because I don't want to read that. They said, stand back. And they said, this one came in to stay here and he keeps acting as a judge. They're talking about Lot. Now we will deal worse with you than with them. So they pressed hard against the man Lot. They came near to break down the door, but the men reached out their hands, pulled Lot into the house with them, shut the door, and they struck the men who were at the doorway of the house with blindness, both small and great, so that they became weary trying to find the door. And then the end of the story is they pull Lot and his family out of town. Lot's wife loves the city. Can you imagine loving a city like this? She turns around and looks back, even though the angel said, don't look back. She's turned into a pillar of salt at that moment. Lot and his two daughters escape, and there's all kinds of ridiculous Jerry Springer stuff that happens after that, creating these two wicked nations that Israel ends up having to fight for eternity, seemingly. But my point is, is that, my question is, why did God destroy Sodom? He ends up destroying Sodom. Why did he do it? Well, the town's called Sodom, and we just read this passage, so you would assume it's because of this sexual immorality. What was their undoing? I want to submit to you that the seedbed for all their sin wasn't actually what you think it was. Their seedbed for all their sin can be found in Ezekiel chapter 16. So maybe you can find it, maybe you can't. If I was going to do it without my tabs, I probably couldn't. It would take me a while. But it's after Jeremiah, it's after Isaiah, it's after uh, Lamentations, 
And then there's a book called Ezekiel, a book of prophecy. And in this book, um, God is speaking about the nation of Israel, and he's speaking to them. But something interesting that takes place is that he starts calling the nation of Israel more wicked than Samaria and more wicked than Sodom. Interesting, right? Because we just read this passage. But he says this in verse 48 of chapter 16 in Ezekiel. He says, As I live, says the Lord God, neither your sister Sodom nor, your da- nor her daughters have done as your daughters have done. Look, this was the iniquity of your sister Sodom. And then he goes out to list the iniquity, the wickedness of Sodom, and it's not what you think it is. She and her daughter had pride. They were full of food and abundance of idleness. Neither did she strengthen the hand of the poor and the needy. And they were haughty and committed abomination before me. Therefore, I took them away as I saw fit. He destroyed them. So the seedbed for their sinfulness that we just read about was actually, uh, they were prideful, they were full of food. Does this describe anything that you can recognize? And guess what? Um, They were idle. They were disorderly. They were not ordered as a society according to the plan of God. And look at this. On top of all of that, she did not strengthen the hand of the poor and the needy. She didn't take care of the poor and the needy. So, as the church, our call as people who work is not to avoid the obvious sin, it's to avoid the seedbed. And it's not to just not do things, it's to do things. When God says to put off something, he says, instead of doing these things you used to do, do this. Instead of being idle, use your hands to work. And if you're working for your boss, it's a bummer. But if you're working for Jesus, it's a blessing. So if you will take that work, that is a four-letter word, I get it, I do it, day in and day out. If you look at it as, this is me providing for my family according to God's, God's providing. He's given me a job. Not everybody has a job these days. And number two, I can be a blessing to others. I can serve the poor, the needy, those that are around me that don't have. I've got a little extra, may not be a bunch, but I can help out in that way. And then as a result of that, Uh, We won't be like Sodom. Our nation is one that is like that. And I blame the Christian church because we're the only ones that know how to fix it. It starts with you and me. And so Paul, as he closes the letter, and I'll just read through it because that's the main point I wanted to make today. Idleness is way more than gossip. It's way more than meddling. If in the wrong wrong way, it actually leads to worse. He says, but... uh, Now those who are, verse 12, such, we command and exhort through our Lord Jesus Christ that they work in quietness and eat their own bread. But as for you, brethren, do not grow weary in doing good. And I would say that to you this morning. Don't grow weary in doing good. Love overcomes. Jesus overcame by being faithful. And he will make us faithful, and he will do it. And then um, he says, If anyone does not obey our word in this letter, note that person and do not keep company with him that he may be ashamed. We talked about that already. But then he says, yet do not count him as an enemy. Don't count him as an enemy. Have compassion. And he says this, admonish him as a brother. 
The word admonish is one I had to look up because I hadn't looked it up in a while. It means to warn or reprimand firmly. Disassociate, but also still have conversation. Warn and reprimand. Now, he prays as he closes, May the Lord of peace himself give you peace always and in every way. The Lord be with you all. The salutation of Paul with my own hand, which is a sign in every epistle, so I write. In other words, he authenticates it with his horrible handwriting. And then he says, the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you all. Amen. It's grace that he warns them about this. So um, let's pray. Father God, um, I thank you for the wisdom that Paul uh, had because of his relationship with you.